this is really going to be the primary focus for the army for the next five years at minimum, and it's really going to eat up 75 to 80% of our deployable capacity. So, like, it is the mission, like, full stop. Hi, I'm Captain Adam Morton with the Canadian Army Podcast. The Canadian Army has a new mission, lead a multinational brigade in Latvia to act as a deterrence and defense in case of attack. We're going to be asking questions about what we're doing, how we're going to do it, and what impact it'll have on the troops. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Kiley is part of the planning team here at Army Headquarters, and he's going to get into it with us. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Adam. Great to be here. All right. So we're in Latvia with a battle group right now under Operation Reassurance, doing training, deterrence. We're scaling up. What's what's changing? So right now we've got uh, the Canadian-led multinational battle group. It's about 1,200 declared NATO soldiers. You know, about 40% of that is Canadian Army. What's changing, though, is right now that battle group is part of the Latvian Mechanized Infantry Brigade, the okay. primary army element of the Latvian uh, land force. So we're integrated into them. We are. It's a Canadian lieutenant colonel working for a Latvian colonel who's responding to a Danish two-star general at Multinational Division North. That sounds complicated. It is very complicated, <laughs> but it makes for great meetings because you get to meet lots of uh, interesting people from all over Europe uh, right. and the world. But what's changing is NATO's asked us to actually stand up a whole new brigade. So we're going to pull that battle group out of the Latvian brigade, and we're going to use it as the, the cornerstone of a new multinational brigade so that there'll be two brigades aligned for the deterrence and defense if necessary of Latvia. Okay, so how many troops does that come to? So the brigade will expand from about 750 Canadian Army positions to up to 1,600 uh, Canadian Army positions. And on top of that, the Canadian Army will be supporting some theater-level assets, including the national support element, the national command element, uh, and a few other smaller pieces like the, uh, the theater signals, for example. So really, we're looking at close to tripling the number of Canadian Army personnel that are deployed at any time uh, for operator assurance. Why are we doing this expansion? Like, what's the purpose of adding these extra soldiers? So, you know, I think many of your listeners will remember that we started the EFP battle group in response to Russia's first invasion of Ukraine when they seized Crimea. Right. So we had a smaller series of land missions, mostly out of Poland. The Land Task Force for Opera Assurance went from about 2015 to 2016, rotating troops through Poland. And then in 2017, we took the lead of the EFP battle group, the Enhanced Forward Presence battle group in Latvia, which many of our soldiers and, and officers have deployed on over the last years. So immediately after the second Russian invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, NATO doubled the size of the EFP program. So we went from four battle groups to eight battle groups. So we added an additional four. And that kicked off a round of kind of planning and discussions in NATO, both on the military side and the political side, about what was the required footprint in Europe, not only to deter, which had been the mission since 2017, but also to be able to defend if necessary, should there be any Russian incursion, either into the Baltics or really any of NATO's uh, eastern uh, front countries. And are we adding any capabilities with this? Like, is anything new coming in to help out new tools? There's quite a few new capabilities coming on board. Um, you know, some immediate decisions were taken. Uh, you know, there's been some uh, fantastic work by maintainers all across the Canadian Army getting our Leopard 2 squadron out the door. That's an immediate top up to the current battle group as an interim measure. Over the next year, we're going to be shipping, you know, hundreds of pieces of major equipment, vehicles and sea containers over to Latvia to start expanding our footprint more command and control vehicles, more sustainment vehicles, more intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Separately, we're actually pursuing about $1 billion worth of hard capabilities, uh, investments specifically for the Canadian Army in the Opry Assurance mission that will be, you know, arriving between 2024 and 2026 to reinforce our capabilities on the ground. So with all of this going in, what is that extra funding going towards? 
Many of the members of the Canadian Army have already heard about some of the urgent operational requirements. Um, they were actually announced around March 2022, so about a month after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And those were still for the battle group. So the government committed to some additional funds for the Canadian Armed Forces writ large. And part of the Army's slice of that was anti-tank guided missiles, counter uncrewed aerial systems, counter UAS, as I think most people know it, as well as our first real set of soldier portable air defense systems, so, so SPADs, a short range air defense system that you can carry and, and move around by foot. But those were still all just for the battle group. Uh, and a couple of months later, the government announced that they were going to continue being the framework nation in Latvia as we expanded from a battle group to a brigade. So as part of the planning for that, we went back to the government and said, OK, well, now we're going to need to, in some cases, double the scale of those UORs to match the scale going from a battle group to a brigade. We've also asked for some additional new capabilities that are really tied to and in support of the operations mission. So some of the things that will be coming down over the next few years, pre-deployed light tactical vehicles so we can fly light forces over to Latvia and they'll have a platform to move around on. Right. We're taking some of the uh, armored heavy support vehicle systems, the HSVS that our soldiers used initially in Afghanistan. They've been Pretty in, cool trucks too. They are, the big transformer truck. They've, yeah. been in, they've been in preservation. So imagine like boat wrap. You see the, the blue plastic over yeah, a boat. Yeah, that's they, right. They've basically been in that state in Montreal for the past few years. There's a few in Latvia, there's a few in the divisions, but we're going through the entire preserved fleet and doing a repair and overhaul and sending them forward to Latvia. So we have additional heavy logistics capacity. We're investing in some new capabilities like loitering munitions. So hopefully uh, in 2025, we'll be able to take some of the training and expertise we developed with small UAVs in the Canadian Army, think like the Raven, mm -hmm. and convert the training and experience that soldiers in the artillery and armor corps have into loitering munition detachments, which would be an awesome capability for us. Would you like to explain a little bit what loitering munitions are for people who may not know? Yeah, so a loitering munition is a soldier-controlled, one-way, uncrewed aerial vehicle that has a warhead, either anti-personal or, or anti-tank uh, in the front of it. They've become a, a significant feature of Russia's tactics in Ukraine, and they're using them to target Ukrainian key sites, air defense, or uh, radars, for example, or artillery. And in return, Ukraine's been using a significant variety of weaponized commercial drones. So a loitering munition, I would say, is like the quote-unquote professional version of that, where That's it's right. purpose-built. Say, for example, like it's got the same back end of a remote-control airplane, but the front is a javelin warhead that's designed to take out a tank or a self-propelled artillery piece. So we're targeting a system that's around 40 kilometers of range so that as we use other surveillance systems in the Canadian uh, Army's asset, either ground maneuver reconnaissance or things like the RQ-21 Blackjack UAV that's operated by a 4GS, you know, there's an option there to find and then hand off to a strike platform so that we have a capability to reach out and engage targets in that 40 kilometer range, uh, which we can't do right now with our artillery. Yeah, and those things are pretty cool in the sense that I remember if you look at Afghanistan, just having some type of air support mm -hmm. on hand makes you feel a little bit safer and it makes you feel like you have access to some capabilities to do things that you might not otherwise do as an infantry on the ground. And so now you have access to that in the palm of your hand is your own airstrike capability that you can launch yourself, which is pretty neat. Exactly. And you're not dependent on, you know, higher weather. You're not dependent on what conditions are in an airbase two countries away. It's something, yeah, in, right. it's something in a commander's back pocket that he or she has a guaranteed weapon to destroy a tank or a self-propelled artillery piece or a key enemy C2 node, you know, in that 30 to 40 kilometer range, which can make a big difference on the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. So I can't help but notice it's not called the Canadian Latvian Brigade. Obviously, there's a multinational component to this. What does that mean in terms of the deployment of troops and who we're going to be working with? So in mean, big picture, the Canadian Army has three maneuver brigades, and we're supported by six Canadian Combat Support Brigade out of Kingston, which harnesses a real expertise in enablers and specialist capabilities. 
you know, back once upon a time, well before I joined the army, you know, I was <laughs> yeah. I was still a very young child. But Canada did have a fourth, you know, four CMBG based in in Germany. So we had a persistently deployed fourth uh, maneuver brigade based on members posted to Europe. You know, we're just not there, you know, right now. The Canadian army is significantly smaller than it was in the '80s and the early '90s. So it's a challenge for us to imagine how we can sustain a brigade overseas when we only have three brigades total to work with. Of course. So, you know, as much as we would like to be able to commit persistently a full Canadian brigade, and if this was a mobilization scenario, this was a, an actual specific war, it'd be a different situation. But we're, we're yeah. talking about something we want to sustain on a three, five, ten year horizon. So it's going to be a Canadian-led brigade. And what that means is we're going to continue to provide the EFP battle group, the Canadian-led EFP battle group as the cornerstone, so one of the maneuver units. We're going to deploy a, a proper brigade command team and headquarters. So actual brigade commanders from the Canadian Army are going to deploy for a year long with a selection of their staff who will rotate between six and 12-month deployments based on their personal circumstances to provide that command and control for the brigade. They'll be supported by, you know, Canadian signalers, Canadian logisticians, Canadian uh, soldiers providing that close protection for the headquarters element. But the rest of the brigade is really going to be a mix of either fully multinational combined units or independent sending nation uh, commitments from our allies. So, for example, we'll have the current EFP battle group, which has over about 60% is sending nation allies, Spain, Italy, Montenegro, North Macedonia, Albania, you name it. It's a great coalition of fantastic partners. There will be an independent uh, Danish battle group that will be assigned to the brigade. It'll be on the ground about four months a year and the rest of the year on high readiness at home in Denmark. Okay. Uh, there'll be a flyover 3rd Canadian Infantry Battalion. Really imagine... Um, Imagine a warehouse full of light vehicles, anti-tank guided missiles, and heavy weapons that one of the light battalions can get on one of the new Royal Canadian Air Force A330 transports, which can take 300 passengers and all their equipment and weapons and extra cargo. Imagine if you'd fill that plane with light infantry soldiers, flew it over to Latvia, and they fell in that warehouse of vehicles and missiles, and they went out to the woods and closed off the uh, the close uh, approaches into Latvia. Like, it's a great option to expand our combat power without having those 300 soldiers persistently deployed all the time. Supporting that, there'll be a multinational artillery unit. So there's actually more artillery in the current EFP battle group than in one of our brigades back home. Like there is a lot of guns. Yeah. It's awesome if you're the battle group commander, <laughs> but it's almost to the point where it's hard to command and control. Yeah. So we're right. going to break that out into a dedicated artillery battalion, still multinational, but under Canadian leadership. So we just harness all of the firing units, like so actual batteries of guns, as well as all the various intelligence and surveillance uh, target acquisition. So imagine... You know, one integrated chain of command that has guns to fire, electronic warfare to detect where an enemy might be operating, UAVs, like all the assets that you need to, to really understand the battle space and then find targets for those guns, supporting the brigade commander and all the maneuver units. And it's taking a bit of pressure off the current battle group command staff to do that. There will be, again, a multinational logistics unit. So imagine that second line support, the people that are bringing you fuel, bullets, water, recovering your, your damaged vehicles and, and fixing them up and getting them back in the fight. There will be an expanding Canadian Forces Health Services medical footprint. So, right. you know, we'll, we have the close support medics that we're all used to. We're looking at forward deploying the uh, equipment for a role to Bravo Hospital. Oh, so wow. like actual field surgical care so that, you know, if we do have to activate the brigade, if the geopolitical situation advances where there is a more pressing threat from Russia, the equipment will already be there to rapidly fly over and surge on and activate actual surgical capability right in our back pocket. A couple other interesting uh, contributions. The Royal Canadian Air Force is going to get involved. So we're going to see persistently deployed Griffins directly supporting the brigade. And in the future, we'll be able to surge Chinooks over as well for major training exercises or operations. So in a couple of years, you'll have, you know, imagine Canadian soldiers working alongside Danish battle group, getting supported by RCAF helicopters. Once we're really fully set, we have all our infrastructure, all our ranges, everything built. Like, 
picture all the good stuff we bring in for Maple Resolve, but now it's happening in Latvia as this major international exercises where we get a lot more play from our allies because we're in Europe in their backyard. That's right. We're going to them. They're exactly. not coming to us. Yeah. So it's going to turn into a really great opportunity just to work with all sorts of different partners within NATO, both in Latvia and eventually in the, in the neighboring Baltic countries, uh, and just play with a lot of assets and learn from a lot of other forces that you wouldn't get to day to day here in Canada. Have other nations also committed to support this brigade specifically? Yes. So all of our partners have, you know, really stepped up and they've said, hey, like we've got a lot of pressures in Europe. In many cases, countries that were members of our battle group are now hosting their own battle groups that also have to expand into brigades in their home countries. Um, but they've said, you know, we've been here with Canada since 2017. They genuinely appreciate the approach that Canada has had to integrating multinational partners as pure, full partners, part members of the team, and ensuring that every member of the battle group, whatever flag they're wearing on their shoulder, gets high-quality training and they go home better trained than when they left. They've really appreciated it, and they've told us that at every engagement we've had, and they're going to stay in our battle group. You know, with the exception of one partner, Slovakia, which is going to pull out at the end of 2024, understandably, Slovakia is really on the front line of That's uh, right. NATO's eastern flank. And they're now hosting a new EFP battle group that also has to expand to a brigade. I mean, it's a completely logical decision, and we fully support them focusing on the defense of their homeland. Yeah, they're still supporting. They're just supporting from their own border. Uh, every, everybody's <laughs> yeah. still in the same uh, yeah. NATO fight. Like, we're all defending uh, Europe from the threat of Russian aggression, whether they do it in Latvia or whether they're doing it at home in Slovakia. Like, it's, we're on the same mission in the same team, and we'll see them again in training in the future. But, you know, we appreciate that it's going from four battle groups to eight battle groups and then telling each battle group that it needs a plan to expand to a brigade in as little as 10 days. But like it's a huge change in the situation. So yeah. for all of our countries, all of our partners that have said, notwithstanding this massive new challenge across Europe, we're still going to stay with you in Latvia. Like that's incredible camaraderie and we really appreciate it. Yeah. And it's going to be pretty interesting for soldiers to actually have the chance to work with multinational partners. If I think of Afghanistan, for example, you know, sometimes you had the opportunity to work with maybe one or two different nations as you're uh, going on missions and stuff. Being integrated into multinational battle group means you're really going to get a chance to sample how everybody else does their business and maybe learn some things from that that you can take back and improve our own tactics and procedures and stuff. And also just see other types of equipment that are out there. You know, Denmark's going to bring a lot of high-end capability to the fight. We're fairly similar in our kit and equipment, but it's always good to see different perspectives. You know, people who speak the same language as you have the same mission, but approach it in a slightly different way. Like there's a lot right. to learn there. And especially as we're all trying to um, get back into the mindset of large-scale conventional combat operations and kind of push aside 20 years of the war on terror and the lessons we learned in <laughs> Afghanistan yeah. and actually think about how we're going to fight drones. What do you do if a drone drops a grenade on you, right? And we have all these partners who are now actively trying to solve the same problems. Um, so rather than a bunch of Canadians sitting in the field in Wainwright trying to think of how to solve these problems, it's going to be 10, 12, 13 NATO partners sitting in Latvia with 10, 12 different approaches to the same problem, different pieces of equipment, and we'll really be able to share those lessons and walk away with like actual TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are validated by a multitude of operational experience, not just you know something that we came up with on paper ourselves. Okay, so as it stands now, the Army works on sort of a three-year cycle where you have a lead mounting division that's expected to provide troops to do missions. Is there going to be a change the way that works? So I think many people in the Army uh, are tracking that we've been adjusting the managed readiness plan over the last year. The 
managed readiness plan, which had been based still on all of the deployments being serviced in a single year. So you'd go through build, you'd move into contingency. So you build up all that readiness and the high scale, you hold it for a year in the just in case of war kind of box. And then in the third year, you would go on deliberate scheduled missions. But the scope and scale of all of our missions was enough that a single lead mounting division could service them all in a single year. That's no longer the case. Um, you know, the size of the mission in Latvia with also Op Unifier, our support to Ukraine, and a few other small missions like Op Impact, yeah. um, you know, still on the books. There just was too much pressure for a single lead mounting division to service everything. So we've been adapting the managed readiness plan so that you move through a year of training. Then you'll spend a year focused on the NATO mission, whether you're deployed in Latvia deliberately for Op Reassurance on a scheduled deployment, or whether you're at home on some notice to move to reinforce or potentially you deploy and you come back on your notice to move. And then in the third year, there's an opportunity for the lower intensity missions to deploy on things like Op Unifier, where you can integrate new people who just came in at posting season or different members of the Army Reserve who haven't gone through the full warfighting training package, but can do top-up training at their home station and go at the door. So it's going to lead to a bit of an interesting first year for the brigade because it's also the transition year for the managed readiness plan. So what units are going out the door uh, to like kick this off a little bit? So the major building blocks, it'll be a fire brigade headquarters out of two division in Belcartier that's going to provide the headquarters. So Colonel Aspero, the current commander of fire brigade, will go for the first year as the commander of the multinational brigade in Latvia. The first battle group will be the 2nd Venduziem Battalion uh, leading. And then they will be replaced after six months by the Lord Strathcona's horse is going out the door for the, uh, the 2nd battle group. Inside that, though, we're increasingly going to see a mix of forces from the different divisions. So now that we've got tanks deploying, you know, Tanks deploying at the same time as the Armor Corps centralizing the tanks with the strats uh, in Edmonton. So this Christmas, we'll see the first and only Royal Canadian Dragoon Sea Squadron at a gauge town. They'll yeah. deploy once for a rotation in Latvia, and their job really is to operationalize the Leopard 2 Squadron. So get it out to the training area, get training with all the partners, figure out all the range and training implications for Canada now having our own Leopard 2s in the field there. But after they come back, they're going to be downing their tanks and returning as a cavalry squadron. So that means the strats forever on will always have to have a tank squadron in Latvia. Many of the specialist capabilities like air defense, counter UAV, those are only live in six brigade units. You know, really the fourth general service artillery, for example. Yeah. So they're always going to have an element on the ground. So it's an interesting mix where there's the managed readiness plan for the army that shows the big building blocks, but little subordinate micro MRPs, as we call them, are popping up of how the strats are going to take their three tank squadrons and always have one training, one deploying, and one recovering. And the same for a lot of the, uh, the specialist elements like air defense and, and counter UAV. But a big piece for us, though, is that like all these dates are there on a calendar. Um, like it is That's very, right. very predictable. It's real. Yes. <laughs> it's happening. Uh, and uh, an interesting, like if you've looked at the way the managed readiness plan has changed over the years, and we recently mapped them out, you know, from about 2003, when the Army's first kind of modern three-phase managed readiness plan came into effect, it has ebbed and flowed. So when we don't have a specific mission, the MRP is very generic. It's like this division will be there just in case. Like this division will do the known things. But during the peak of Afghanistan, it was a hyper-detailed scheduling tool down to which company or squadron is going to do which task, where and when. So we're moving back to a bit of a blend. We're less focused on these generic what-if readiness remates. That's right. And we're really focusing on, like, someone needs to deploy on this exact rotation, and it needs to look like this force structure, and you need to train exactly to that. The perk of that, though, is we can lay this out for three years. We can put the relief-in-place dates on the calendar and say, three years out, 
the divisions all need to tell the army commander what exact unit is going on which exact rotation, which frankly, from my seat, I think that predictability is going to enable a lot of things in the army. First and foremost, it lets our members arrange their personal lives, their military lives, uh, regular force members. Critically, it lets our army reserve teammates look at where they are in their life, school, work, what have you, and find opportunities that they can go on a, on a scheduled deployment. Um, but it also lets the army take like a bit of a more mature look at who needs to get posted to what unit and when. You know, when do you bring someone back from an outside the regiment posting back into the regiment uh, to make sure they get the proper experience profile? When what unit gets priority for individual training? Where does key pieces of equipment or resources to move around? Like that three-year schedule of predictability is going to be a huge enabler for us, both at the individual soldier and officer level, but also as an institution. So we can make sure like the right people, the right equipment, the right resources are there for the known tour so I'm really looking forward to uh, to being able to use reassurance as a lever to ensure some predictability for all members of the Army. You know, a CEO of mine once remarked that uh, a police force, as an example, always has a predictable job in the sense that, you know, you have your rest, training, administration cycles, and you know what the job is because you're there and you're doing it. But the military kind of has to get ready for a big question mark, and you don't know what that is. It's going to, like, immediately impact the way soldiers train uh, for deployments as well. The previous model was based on maximizing generic readiness. So your right, brigade yeah. out in the field, you train for large-scale combat operations, and you're ready for any contingency. But now that we have a very specific mission, we have a very specific force structure that's required, like there's no question over the next three to five years what we're preparing for, which is allowing us to change the collective training model to go back to a, a mission-specific focus, which is what we did in Afghanistan rather than a mm-hmm. generic readiness model. So a lot of the readiness uh, is going to move from this one giant exercise every year, Maple Resolve out west into actually being incorporated in the deployment plan. Uh, so, you know, Maple Resolve is being disaggregated, uh, you know, broken apart. So rather than one big exercise, you'll have Maple Resolve in Canada, which would be up to kind of level five company squadron live fire. And then in your first couple of weeks in your deployment in Latvia, you'll actually do the traditional Maple Resolve that people are thinking about, which uh, we've just recently decided to call Oak Resolve. Oak is kind of the maple tree equivalent in Latvia, the national tree. So just for clarity, Maple Resolve in Canada, Oak Resolve <laughs> yeah, in right. Latvia, we figured it was a, a good compromise. So you'll get to Latvia and you'll do your combat team uh, live fire with the leopards that are now deploying. And then you'll go into that like 14-day force-on-force exercise, which will also be your NATO combat readiness evaluation, Creval, which a lot of people have heard of. And then you'll be, you know, checked off, ready to go. So the big thing for us is like we truly listen to what feedback is out there from soldiers. And we realized that the tour before the tour was a, a dissatisfier. It's a lot. It's a lot to take on. So the last time I went to Maple Resolve was 92 days uh, yeah, front to back. Too. People were in Wainwright for a very long time. It was a good training program, but for people who are dragging their kit and equipment from Belcartier or Gagetown or even uh, Edmonton, because you're still not at home if you're uh, going to Wainwright, it was a huge demand on our soldiers. And in some cases, I've seen as long as 17 weeks away from home as workup training for a 26-week deployment. And that's really not going to be an option when we are knowing that Latvia is going to be a constant demand signal for three, five, even 10 years. And we're going to be asking our soldiers to go two or three times, if not more. Like We understand that. So a key element for us was what could we do to reduce the time away from home that it takes to even go on that deployment with a goal of getting it down from 17 weeks to less than 10. So a big part of that is now Maple Resolve. All the really great elements of the training will be explored to Oak Resolve in Latvia. And it'll be even better because you'll have all the multinational partners there and some U.S. Army Europe assets and a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox so that we can have a better exercise that's built into your six-month deployment anyways. So you're not doing those months away from home before you spend six months away from home. I also uh, heard the commander in a recent interview talking about implementing experiential learning in the context of tasks 
in that deployment in the sense that if allies are coming in from, let's say, Poland or wherever, and they need to do a road move, the best way to train to do road moves is to help them do the road move. And then, you know, you're like bringing all that gear down and doing the logistics movement. That's training. Like you're, you're helping somebody do something or you're doing it yourself. So just by virtue of being over there, you're exercising yourself by just conducting routine tasks. But by doing that routine task, you're getting better at it and you're understanding it better. And so that's in a lot of ways, maybe viewed to be better than doing it inside of an exercise construct where it's not real. You know, you're just road moving from point A to point B through a training area to practice it as opposed to actually doing a real road move from a place to a place because it needs to happen. You know, it's interesting. There's a, been a long history of people writing off Opry Assurance as a training mission, you know, quote unquote. But it's an interesting dynamic because it's a real mission, but it also has lots of opportunity to train embedded in it, which is really, if you think back to the Cold War, you know, when we had uh, four CMBG posted to Europe, like they weren't spending every day in a trench staring at the Russian border. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. They were posted there. They had their families. They were doing career courses. You know, they were doing all the things a professional army does to train, sustain, improve itself. But they were also ready to fight. And that's really the model we're looking to. So it is not a training mission. We're spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to stockpile ammunition and equipment that will be there in case we actually need to defend Lafayette and we will be prepared to do it. But that doesn't mean that we have to spend like every second of every day staring at the eastern flank. Like we will have time in a coordinated program to do deliberate training events. You know, like in the future, is combat team commander going to be run in Latvia? It's possible. Right. Like we have tanks there. We have multinational tanks there. You got all the bits. Like why would I task a company or a battalion of soldiers back here in Canada to go to Gagetown to run this bespoke course when I could just send 10, 20 candidates to Latvia and then we could bring in some multinational candidates and you could have a Spanish officer and an Italian officer. Um, and a Danish officer. Like, there's a lot of opportunity there. Like, once once we get the program established, once we build infrastructure and, and training areas, a lot of the things that we do in the training system here, we can start moving forward to Latvia so that you're potentially going on a deployment, but you're also getting a qualification while you're there. You're doing some of your uh, your professional development. So speaking of infrastructure, obviously that's going to be a big push. You've referred to it a couple of times. What can troops expect during this deployment in terms of, are they going to be sitting in trenches the whole time or sleeping on cots in the middle of the field or what's it going to look like? So, you know, I think a lot of people who have been to Latvia would not be surprised if I say that Camp Adazi, the primary military base in Latvia, is, is full. Like, it is, <laughs> yeah. it is full. Yeah, it's probably uh, you know, The Latvians have been very generous with their land and their space. But there's two things going on. So we're trying to increase our footprint, but the Latvian armed forces have also reintroduced conscription. So they're trying to grow three battalions of conscripted forces, including extra artillery, extra missile forces, extra air defense. So they're doing their own massive growth program as well. And that's really just going to completely strain the capacity of Camp Adazi. So... Right now, I just got back a couple weeks ago from visiting Adazi. I was there early last year. You know, I've seen how busy it is. I've seen how long the lines are for food. I've seen how busy the gym is. And, and we understand that if we're putting soldiers uh, into Latvia, we need to maintain a certain standard of quality of life. Because, like, it's one thing if the enemy is coming in five days and you're going right to the field. Um, yeah. But that balancing that you need to be ready in case that happens, but also you're going to be there for six months and you need to maintain your physical well-being and your mental health. Like, it's, it's a tough balance with the current infrastructure constraints. So, you know, right now, really the same section that you roll out of the back of a lab with, you live together, eight to ten in a room. I, mm -hmm. I understand it's a it's, uh, very constrained space and it, and it is a friction. So we're trying to carefully balance the speed at which we add new people and capabilities with the speed at which we can build new infrastructure. So there's going to be a whole new Canadian camp in a place called Siri, 
It's a Latvian National Guard base. It's just to the west of the Riga International Airport in Riga. So if you got off the plane and you didn't go right into the terminal, you went left and cut your hole through the fence, you'd pretty much be at Siri. Okay. So we're building a camp there that will hold 700 Canadians at steady state and can surge up to 1,400. The idea is to move a lot of the new capabilities, won't deploy until this new space is ready. And then, you know, as we go down the trace, we'll see if we can reallocate some of the people that are at Adazi and move them about 45 minutes away into Siri. So this will kind of be the brigade headquarters, you know, new artillery elements, air defense. Like it's not a perfect world having them disjointed, but it's certainly better than trying to squeeze people, you know, we'll go from 10 to a room to 15 to a room. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, we, we've problem reached, solved. <laughs> we've reached the carrying capacity of Adazi. So opening up the Canadian camp at Siri is going to be a, a huge win for us. And that's probably going to be fall, winter 2024. A little bit behind where we wanted it to be, but it's a tough contracting environment. And there's some uh, issues in Europe. And you know, a lot of the, uh, the the temporary accommodations, the ATCO trailers people are used to, they were actually built in Turkey where the earthquakes have recently significantly disrupted their economy. So there's been a bit of a slowdown, but it's on track now. So you'll see a bit of a delay. Like, I'm not going to lie, the first couple months is going to be a bit spicy. Um, so <laughs> from like June 24 to whatever we get Siri online, we'll call it November 24, there's going to be crowding in a dozzy. Like, not going to sugarcoat that at all. Like, that's going to be the tightest time. But as we move into November, December 2024, like we're talking about like hundreds and hundreds of extra bed spaces being opened up and, and starting to kind of properly balance the load. A little bit further down the trace, we're working with our Latvian partners. They're opening up a whole new training area. Um, so it's called Salia. It's about an hour and a half away from Adazi towards the uh, the southern border. But this is eventually going to become their second you know big maneuver area. So if you can kind of imagine the Peregrines camp in Wainwright, where all the, the big tents are, where you stage out of when you go to Wainwright, or Camp Petersville in Gagetown, that's going to be the new kind of training base where we will send company squadron batteries for a couple weeks at a time in the future. They'll live in you know semi-austere tent accommodations. And they'll have a, a larger training area to break out of a dozzy, see something new, and do some better training once a larger training area opens up. You know, that's going to be towards the end of 2025 to get our first ranges. But really, that's like a 2026 kind of time frame when we're going to have actual maneuver spaces there. In the interim, we're going to see, um, you know, as Finland joins NATO, as other partners expand their own programs, like we're going to start deliberately looking at what other training is in the region. So, you know, we'd like the opportunities in the future that we want our soldiers deploying on this mission to see more of Europe than they currently see. You know, going to Europe and only seeing Camp Adazi in downtown Riga on Saturday isn't, <laughs> yeah. isn't cutting it. Um, so the more we can get people out the door to train in Estonia, Finland, Poland, uh, Lithuania, like that's going to be a win for us. And we're going to keep finding, you know, new opportunities as we wait to expand the training areas in Latvia. I think it's generally well known as your old Roto Zero, you know, the the first crew in always has a little bit of a growing pain to like adjust to what it looks like. And then each iteration after that, you build off of that and it gets a little bit better. And until you hit that steady state of everybody's figure out kind of how it all works. And then after that, it's kind of good to go. Yeah. And it's like, I want to assure people that like very senior levels, like up to the chief of the defense staff, you know, people are very cognizant that. This is a long-term endeavor and squeezing people in 15 to a room for the first year is just going to create, you know, bad memories. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So there's, there's no point in rushing to failure and we'll take a bit of time. We'll take a bit of a pause and make sure that our ramp up, our reinforcement schedule matches the infrastructure, the feeding, the gym, like all the things we need so that people actually have a comfortable time on their deployment. So there's always a lot of back and forth in terms of Reg Force Reserve integration. And now that we have this deployment coming up, what's the deployment plan for reservists? 
So from the very first, you know, steps of planning, we were very clear in the Army that we're going to rely on our teammates in the Army Reserve to help us fill these positions. The Army commander has said that he wants 20% of the appointments. That's like the target he wants to be mm -hmm. filled by, by members of the Reserve. And we're really leveraging kind of the best practices and the lessons learned from all the divisions in managing uh, Reserve augmentation to set up on the right foot. For example, in even recent years, a battalion commander would get the list of tour positions at like maybe six months before, and they would kind of go through randomly and decide which positions they were going to offer to the reserve. So it was always like short notice. You kind of never knew it was coming down the pipe. And for reserve members who need to get time off work or get time off school or, or balance out, you know, their professional life with their military life, that's just really not a tenable solution to get large scale augmentation, but also let every member of the reserve have a, uh, have a fair shake at a deployment. So we're moving to a model where we're actually going to establish one specific elements that are, are dedicated to the reserves in advance. So for example, there's going to be a force protection platoon for the brigade, which will come from the lead mounting division. And we're imagining a pure army reserve TAP V based force protection platoon. You know, I imagine the reserve CBGs, the uh, Canadian brigade groups will get this task and they'll find some mix of armored and infantry units to fill this. That, that's their space. But that'll be a dedicated like platoon level Army Reserve deployment that will be scheduled years in advance that the brigades can work on. Uh, similarly, five Canadian Division and six Brigade will have the opportunity to use their reserves who aren't usually affiliated with one of the lead mounting divisions. They're right. also going to get a force protection element inside the artillery battalion that will be theirs to fill uh, moving forward. Broadly, though, you know, we've recognized that to make deployments attractive and viable, we have to look at a full year of employment. So if we're targeting, um, you know, the soldiers who could take a year off at the end of high school or a year off in university or a year off the end of college before they go into their career, we need a full year of employment. It can't just be like a couple of weeks of workup training and a six-month employment and then you're on your own. So what we've asked for from the very beginning, when we went to government and said, like, how much is this going to cost? What resources do you need? From day one, we calculated a full year of employment for those reserve members for 20% of the entire deployment. So right now we're just going through, uh, you know, the administrative details to set this up, but we want members of the Army Reserve to be able to join their host unit for six months of integration training and then go on the six-month deployment as one cohesive contract, like a full year of employment. We're just working through that right now, but, but the funding was granted by the government specifically for that line of operation for operation assurance, and we think it's going to be very important to sustaining this. We also know that the more months you give a member of the Army Reserve notice that they are going to get this position, like the better opportunities you have. So we know the gold standard is 18 months confirmed task position with a, a message uh, before deployment. Yeah, that's right. It's in your hand. You know the, what's happening. The <laughs> Army doesn't control <laughs> the actual, like when we go to fill an individual's name in a CHPO, that's Canadian Joint Operations Command space. But we're really good teammates. We've, we've become very close for the last year with our CJOC uh, counterparts. And we're, we're working through right now. We've built this predictability. Like we've said, these blocks of positions, this entire sub-subunit will be an Army Reserve. We're going to take some risk and offer those positions very far out to members of the Army Reserve so they can commit early, get everything they need done as far as dagging, and then join the integration training as early as six months out if, if their personal life supports that. If, if it doesn't, there'll be plenty of opportunities for, you know, headquarters staff, liaison officers, uh, individual augmentees that could join one or two months out. But really our goal is to offer that full year of employment at least 18 months out before the deployment date so people can... Uh, can really maximize the number of reserve members that we bring on the mission. And will uh, reserve members also be integrating into the actual units proper? Because force protection is one thing, but actually being a part of people doing the thing as maybe something else? Yeah, so it's an interesting balance. You know, during Afghanistan, we actually had formed reserve subunits, like force protection companies for the, uh, the national support element. So imagine the people protecting convoys running around Kandahar with logistics supplies. So it's that tough balance where we are always going to rely on individual augmentation. 
so an individual corporal C9 gunner who can come from uh, the Brockville Rifles, for example, yeah. and, and join one, the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment. But we also still want that opportunity for reserve leaders, officers, and NCOs to have an actual dedicated element that they can train up their workup training and deploy with. So it, it will certainly be a mix um, if we can reliably force generate an all-reserve force protection platoon. That day-to-day, like, let's be clear, is going to train with the battle group. They're not going to be sitting off on their own. They'll be doing actual training uh, with the fighting echelon. But that would be like a great success for the Army Reserve, I think, and a great opportunity for Army Reserve leaders. And then there'll still be individual augmentees across the entire spectrum, whether they're in the back of a lab in the battle group, whether they're pulling a lanyard with the, the guns in the artillery battery, or a couple years down the trace, are they working with the five div six brigade specialists and uh, crewing a, uh, a soldier portable air defense missile pointing at the sky looking for Russian drones? Like I think we'll see that mix over the next few years. You know, in the 90s, we kind of had Bosnia and there was a lot of peacekeeping and UN missions happening. And then 2000s, 2000s and 10s, that was the Afghanistan time. So we kind of did a lot of things there that changed the way the army did business. This is the next big thing. I mean, I guess we kind of already answered it, but is this going to change the way the army does business moving forward then, I guess? This is really going to be the primary focus for the Army for the next five years at minimum, and it's really going to eat up 75 to 80% of our deployable capacity. So, like, it is the mission, like, full stop for the Canadian Army, and it's going to really force us to manage our resources carefully. So we understand that people are going to deploy multiple times to Latvia, which means that we have to pay attention to individual career progression, right? Because right, if yeah. you're going to go to Latvia three times, you have to learn and grow and see something different every time or you're going to lose interest. So it's going to require like a bit of nuance of being like, what's the right job for this corporal? Because the next tour they'll be here as a master corporal and the next tour they'll be here as a sergeant. So actually making sure that you put people in the right job to grow and not just see the same thing over and over again. So that's kind of on the personal management side. On the equipment side, I think everything you're going to see uh, Director of Land Requirements doing over the next couple of years is kind of taking a pause, looking at the entire portfolio of Army projects and being like, okay, like what's going to Latvia? What's important now? Where do we prioritize? Where do we park an idea? And we get back to that in the future. Like you'll see a real focus on making sure that the right equipment, the right capabilities are forward in Latvia. There's going to be some frustrating consequences on the back end of that. Like a lot of vehicles and equipment are going to move forward to Latvia and it's going to reduce the number of vehicles and major pieces of equipment that are back here in Canada for training. Like no question about it. And and I can't sugarcoat that. Everyone can see that coming. But that'll be balanced in some part by the changes in the training approach. So really training to the specific readiness requirements rather than training to generic readiness requirements will be one of the major changes we see uh, certainly over the next five years. We're not going to the field for weeks away from our families to train just in case. We're going to have well-planned, very specific training programs that are designed to train the right forces for the the known mission set. So what's the end state of all this? Obviously, we have a big plan moving forward. It's going to last for quite some time. Is this going to be the new mode of operation basically moving forward? Or are we envisioning an end state? To, like, where are we going with all this? So a lot of it's going to depend on what happens with Russia and Ukraine. Um, You know, the security situation in Europe is being driven by Russia's completely unjustified invasion of Ukraine. uh, And the way that conflict ends and when that conflict ends is going to tell us a lot about what the security posture in Europe needs to be. Um, So, you know, I'm not going to try to, you know, read the tea leaves and tell you what's going to happen in the future. I I would tell you that, you know, the rotational posture, like the traditional six-month deployment with some members doing 12-month deployments, 
over the next three to five years is really like, that's how we're going to manage it as a first bound. You know, the chief of defense staff and the army commander have had conversations. I've had a chance to sit in the back of the room and, and chip in a little bit about what we need to be thinking about option space in the future. Um, eventually, we will have to adapt. Um, six month rotations times 10 years is, is going to be a bit uh, a bit too much. What you could see is more and more people transitioning to postings instead of deployments. So I think you'll see, even in the short term, more supporters, specialists, mechanics, HRAs, uh, you know, human resources administrators, financial services administrators, kind of those high demand, low strength trades, where we start saying, you know what, instead of trying to find someone to deploy every six months, let's post someone with their family to get a bit more stability. So you'll see more of a move over the coming years to, to actually posting members. You know, five years from now, it is entirely possible that we'd look to replicate the old Germany model at a much smaller scale. Like, right. do we have a battle group posted to Latvia five years from now? Maybe. Alternatively, we could have an entire brigade's worth of equipment sitting in Latvia with a skeleton crew manning it, and then having all those troops ready back home in Canada to fly over within, you know, a couple of weeks and activate it all. So these are ways we could adapt in the future. Certainly, you know, the next three years, we will staff it with a rotational model, uh, traditional deployments, and we'll see, you know, what, what the security situation demands of us in the future. I don't personally want to see a world where a corporal is on a seventh rotation to Latvia in uh, 2032. <laughs> yeah. um, so we, we will adapt uh, based on the security posture. But I think Latvia will be a significant Canadian footprint in Europe for many years to come. Just waits to be determined what the balance is between deployed members, posted members, and pre-staged equipment and munition stocks that are ready for activation. Those are kind of the three tools we have to work with. Well, I'm looking forward to see how it all works out. Me too. I'm kind of trying to figure out how I'm going to get there myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as we look at increasing number of postings, I, I filled out my uh, member aspiration profile and the new <laughs> evaluation system for the very first time like yeah, a couple weeks yeah. ago. And I, my midterm objectives, I, I put that I wouldn't mind bringing my family to Latvia. Uh, yeah, there you 2027 go. maybe uh, as part of the team that's that's posted there. Um, but, but certainly like it's uh, been a big part of my professional life for the last year. And I'm very excited for summer 2024 to see the, the first elements. And then first two weeks of November 2024 will be the very first field training exercise for the Canadian-led multinational brigade in Latvia. So I'll be very anxiously awaiting the feedback from that, hoping to see some, some great photos and videos of our soldiers doing the business in Latvia and hearing hopefully that uh, they had a good time. Maybe we can get the podcast on the ground for that one and uh, get some video and audio. We'll, we'll get you in the uh, the podcast armored combat support vehicle <laughs> yeah. in a couple of years. Yeah, I think uh, we we submitted a request for one of those. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to the G34 and see if I can make sure that gets lined up. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for talking to us, sir. Really well, thanks, you, Adam. Thanks. That was Lieutenant Colonel Mark Kiley, who's part of the planning team for the Multinational Brigade here in the Operations Cell at Canadian Army Headquarters. I'm Captain Adam Morton for the Canadian Army Podcast. Orton out.